Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Um, so we, yeah, we've been talking, we've been doing a series on the apostles, and uh, this is the, the grouping that we have uh, that we've talked about so far. And uh, we just kind of last week, we talked about that these are the people he called. We talked about kind of how he called them and the callings for those that we know. Um, And we looked at the fact that kind of one of the main points from last week was learning to live with the difference in the room. Um, We talked about what it means that he chose people like a zealot and a collaborator like Matthew. Um, That he chose people from such different walks of life and they actually learned to work together with the difference in the room. And what we're going to do as we walk through the series is we're going to go in ascending order of how much text they get in the Gospels. Why? Because it's a simple way to do it. Um, and so we're going to roughly do it. I don't promise. If you go through and count the lines, I may not have gotten these exactly right. But, but we're going to roughly go from people who got almost no information to people we have a lot of information with, which means we'll end up with Peter and Judas at the end. Um, so that leaves us today for our first grouping It leaves us with these four. So Thomas, otherwise known as Didymus, James, Alphaeus' son, Thaddeus, known as Jude, and Simon the Zealot. But let's be honest, we already acknowledged last week that we know absolutely nothing about these bottom three. And so we've already said everything that we can say about them. And so that leaves us with Thomas. Uh, And other than the fact that Simon is a zealot, and uh, other than the fact that uh, James could be any number of different James, and that Thaddeus also went by Jude, we really don't know anything about them. So here we are, we're going to look at Thomas, and that's what we're going to explore today, is Thomas. You'll notice it says there, Thomas Didymus, and the reason it says that is because in the Gospel of John, John is the one who tells us the most about Thomas. Everywhere else that Thomas appears, he's just in a list of apostles. He's always in the list. Um, He's in every list that we get, including one in Acts, so he's definitely recognized as one of the apostles, but John is the only one who gives us more information, just a few short passages And yet in each of those three short passages, John refers to him as Thomas, also known as Didymus. And so he right off the bat tells us that. And he actually says it every time he mentions Thomas, for whatever reason it's worth. He says, Thomas, also known as Didymus. So uh, all that does, though, is that just deepens the mystery about Thomas. Doesn't give us a whole lot of more information. It just kind of adds to the whole sense of who is this guy. Um, So you've probably heard, or many of you may have heard, that Didymus is a Greek word which means twin. So sometimes Thomas is called Thomas the twin. But that just adds more questions because there's no evidence of a twin in scripture. Who is this twin? What happened to his twin? Uh, Maybe he just looks a lot like somebody else and so they called him a twin. We, We just don't know what this even means, right? We have no idea. But actually, it gets even more mysterious than this because you may have heard that Didymus means twin in Greek, but what you may not know is that Thomas means twin in Aramaic. So in fact, when you read in this passages where John says, Thomas, also known as Didymus, what it really says is the twin, also known as the twin. So that's confusing. (laughs) It makes me wonder a couple of things. One is, it makes me wonder if Thomas is even his name. Maybe in fact, his name isn't even Thomas. Maybe he just had a nickname, which was the twin, and the Greeks called him the twin in Greek, and the the Hebrews called him the twin in Aramaic, and he's just known as the twin. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that his name is Thomas, 
And the Greeks simply called him the twin because they found out that Thomas means twin. So they simply translated it to their own Greek term, the twin, which means he's not a twin at all, maybe. That just happens to be what his name means. None of this gets us any further in understanding who Thomas is, though, does it? <laughs> but it's interesting to me that even just in this little bit, Thomas is kind of this mysterious figure. Why is he called two names? Why do both of his names mean twin? What does that even tell us about anything? We don't know. I could make up lots of stuff for you, but I'm not going to. Um, but that's, that's what we know. That's what the phrase Thomas, also known as Didymus, tells us. I, I will tell you there are claims in India to this day. There are churches that declare that they are direct descendants of the missionary work of Thomas. And tradition tells us that Thomas went to India, that he is the one who planted seven churches in India and started the churches there. And in fact, if you go to certain parts of India, you'll discover Thomas's name all over the place. It's on uh, stores and markets and churches because he's a very important person uh, to the Syriac Christians in India. And so again, this is tradition. It doesn't tell us anything in scripture about whether this is true or not, but according to tradition, he's a missionary to India where he started at least seven churches. And he was martyred in Malapore, India on July 3rd, 72 AD, when he was stabbed by spears. Why am I so specific? Because that's what the tradition says. Not a spear, but spears. So again, don't know why. <laughs> Not sure what this tells us. And, you know, tradition means it doesn't have the authority of scripture, but it doesn't always mean it's false either. And there seems to be some historical precedent for this. Like I say, there are churches that trace themselves back very far and claim that they came as a direct result of Thomas's work there. And we know for a fact that when Vasco da Gama, the explorer in 1948, when he went to India, he fully did not expect to find any Christians. And he was very surprised to discover there were lots of Christians. And when he talked to them, what they said was, we've been here for more than a millennia. We've been here for a thousand years that we came with Thomas. We came when Thomas came. Thomas came and brought, brought Christianity to us. After 1948, there's a heavy Catholic influence in India, but the Christianity before that was different. It was a, it was a Christianity that they claimed came directly from Thomas the Apostle. All fascinating, all very interesting, but really all I've done so far is tell you things we don't know about Thomas. <laughs> Speculations, traditions, history, this mystery of who he is. So what I do want to do is I want to look at the text. Let's go ahead and look at the text. Let's see what John does tell us about Thomas or what we can discover about Thomas. John doesn't actually tell us anything about Thomas. He simply records three conversations that Thomas has. And through those conversations, we can perhaps begin to get an idea of who he is. You probably, many of you, have probably a different nickname for Thomas other than Thomas the Twin. We know him in Western culture as... Doubting Thomas. Yes, Doubting Thomas, which might be a misnomer as we've discovered in all respects. Perhaps he's not doubting and perhaps he's not Thomas, but who knows? Uh, but let's look at that. Let's see where that comes from and let's explore that. It is interesting. This is how he's known to us as Doubting Thomas. So it comes from this passage. John 24, this is not the first passage we hear about Thomas, but I start with it because it's the one most of us are familiar with. So in John 24, it's after the resurrection, and we're told this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This actually is a really strong statement, isn't it? It's not even doubt. It's almost like 
determination. <laughs> he doesn't just say, unless this happens, I have some questions. He says, unless this happens, I will not believe. And I think it's because of that strength that we, we, we've come to know him by this, right? That the, 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 the fact that he says this so strongly, that it's like he's refusing, in a sense. He seems, he seems to be really uh, determined to not believe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question whether that's actually what he meant. I'll show you that in a second. But, but this is where it comes from, right? Here he is. All the other disciples, all the other apostles believe that Jesus has come from the dead. Only Thomas, only poor doubting Thomas stands aside and says, nope, until I see it, I don't believe it. And so this is where he got his nickname. Uh, let's keep going and see what happens. It says a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. So now it's a week later, Thomas is hanging out with the disciples. That in itself is an interesting question given the strength of his statement before. We'll come back to that later. But he's in the, he's in the house with the disciples. Thomas is with them. It's as though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a whole lot of things I want you to think about. Just, just picture what's happening here. First of all, Jesus gives several proofs of the unusual nature of him, right? Now that he's come to life. For one thing, it makes clear he appears in this locked room. The doors are locked and he appears in the midst of them. By the way, why are the doors locked? Because the apostles are afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they put all their trust in this Messiah who was crucified. And now remember how they abandoned Jesus at the cross. Well, they're still hiding. They're still afraid. So the doors are all locked. But Jesus just walks through the walls. He just teleports. We don't actually know in what form he comes in the room, but he comes into this locked room and he stands there. And of course, the first thing he says essentially is relax, don't be afraid, which is a good thing to say when you've either walked through walls or teleported into the middle of a crowd. <laughs> Peace. And then he immediately turns to Thomas and gives him what he wants. Now, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I want you to note a couple of things because I want you to remember them when I come back to talk about them later. I'm not going to explain why I'm bringing them up now, but I want you to note these things. The first thing is, if you read this carefully, it's actually not clear if Thomas does put his hand in Jesus' hand or touch the sides, right? Jesus offers to let him do it, but in the scripture, it's not clear he's invited to do that. But as I read the text, it appears to me that he doesn't actually need to, that he sees Jesus, Jesus invites him to do it, but before he does any of that, he just says, my Lord and my God. It is possible to assume he went ahead and did that. Maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal. It may not be. Again, I'll tell you later why I bring it up, but I just want you to notice for now, it's not clear in this passage that he actually follows through with what he said he had to do in order to believe, that seeing Jesus ends up being enough. The second thing I want to point out is Jesus' words. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to make sure we don't extrapolate two things from this. One is, there's no reason to assume this is a reproach. It could be, but it's not clear to me that it is. He is simply saying, because you have seen, you have believed. This is a statement of truth, right? This is a statement of fact. The second thing I want you to notice is Jesus does not make a comparative statement in the next sentence. He doesn't say, more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Do you see that? 
He simply says, blessed are. You could say, he says, blessed also are those who have not seen and yet believed. It's as if he's talking about two different groups of people, and it's not clear to me that he's saying one is better than the other. He might be. But he's talking about Thomas, who believed because he saw, and then he's saying there are also going to be people, or already have been people, depending how you read this, who have believed without seeing, and they also are blessed, or perhaps they are more blessed. But it doesn't say more blessed. And I think Thomas feels pretty blessed. I think he doesn't even care if someone else feels more blessed. <laughs> He's feeling really blessed. Now, who is Jesus referring to when he talks about those who have not seen and yet have believed? Well, it could be us, right? We are people who have not seen. We didn't get the opportunity Thomas had to put our hands or even look at the holes in Jesus' side. We only believe based upon the eyewitness of other people, the very thing that Thomas did not receive. But he could also be talking about, and given that he uses the term past tense, it's worth considering, he could be talking about the prophets, right? The prophets have never seen what they believed in all this time. They've been waiting and waiting for the Messiah, never saw it, and Jesus could be assuring Thomas either, hey, those people don't miss out just because they didn't get to see what you see. Or he could be assuring Thomas, hey, guess what? There's people that aren't going to get to see, and you're going to need to tell them, and they're going to believe you without seeing what you've seen, which would explain Thomas's zeal to go to a place that nobody else was going to if indeed he went to India. Either one is fine. Just notice that's the tenor of the conversation. I think, personally, is more of an encouragement to Thomas that other people aren't missing out on what Thomas got just because they didn't see. Imagine if everybody could only receive the gospel if they saw what Thomas saw. This church would be even smaller than it is. As in, non-existent. <laughs> okay, just keep those things in mind. Here's what I want to talk about today. I don't want to pick on Thomas for his doubt. I will tell you, I think there's one place he went wrong, and I'll tell you what that is. But before I do that, I actually want to share something else with you tonight. I want to tell you why I respect Thomas's doubt. I want to tell you why I think it may be a sign of his strength. And the other verses he shows up in may, may verify what I'm about to tell you. Like everything uh, that isn't the pure text, you don't have to agree with everything I share today. <laughs> But I want you to consider it, and I want you to think about it, because it does bear relationship to what we as a church want to do with our doubts and what we think about them in general. So here's why I respect Thomas's doubts. Number one, he's suspicious of agendas deceiving him. I want you to think about something. Everything in Thomas would lead him to want to believe the apostles. Do you see that? There's nothing about Thomas that would make him want to resist the apostles. He doesn't want to not believe Jesus came to life. That would be fantastic if Jesus came to life or if he had never died. But as the apostles are sharing with him something he's never seen, something that, let's be honest, you would probably be skeptical of as well, <laughs> that your best friend who just died, guess what? We saw him. He's alive. Thomas hears the apostles say that, and I think I understand where he's coming from. Perhaps there's more in me of Thomas than, than, than I might have thought, because I can relate to what he's saying, because my initial thought, if, if that is what happened, in fact, today, if you, people I trust, my friends, my loved ones, if you came to me and said, I saw Jesus physically in person yesterday, I love you, but I might doubt you. And I believe Jesus came back to life already. <laughs> now Thomas is believing 
as everyone through history has done, that when people die, they don't show up the next day or three days later. It's really, I think, there's all sorts of weird things we think about the time of Jesus dying. I, I've mentioned this before because it just makes me chuckle. I've heard people say, well, they believed in resurrection because they didn't have science yet. Well, I, I guarantee you, long before the Greeks developed science, people had enough observational skills to know that when people died, they stayed dead. That really wasn't in question. And so here they are saying, we saw Jesus, he's alive. Thomas thinks that sounds unlikely. And he loves them. He trusts them. They're his friends. But you know what else he knows about them? He knows they really, 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 really need Jesus to be alive. He knows they really want Jesus to be alive. He knows that their whole lives, because he knows it because it's how he feels. And I can understand. I'm not saying it's all okay. Again, I'll tell you where I think he went wrong. But I can understand why even with his best friends, the apostles, he would think, you know, you guys aren't always right. <laughs> I've been hanging out with you three years. And sometimes you get it wrong. And I've heard so many theories. We've talked about so many theories. We all were convinced what was going to happen, and it didn't happen. And I'm just not sure I trust your group think anymore. I'm not sure I trust our group think anymore. He's suspicious of their agendas and his own agenda deceiving him about what's true. He knows that they desperately want to believe this. He knows that he desperately wants to believe this. And I think it's important for us to recognize this. We find it much easier to believe sources who match our desires, fears, or general worldview. If they tap into one of those things, we're more inclined to accept it. We think that we trust people and accept what they're saying because we're logical and rational and they're giving us good, hard data. But most of the time, it's because they match our desires, our fears, or our own agendas, our own worldview. And Thomas is being honest enough to say, my desire isn't enough to make it so. And what you're asking me to believe is awfully big. So I think we do well to be more, more skeptical ourselves. Oh, you know what? I think I left something out. Let me back up here a second because I do want to make sure we read this. I, I want to go back. Well, maybe not. Hold on. Let me, look one, let me go back one more slide because if it's here, I really want to read this. Oh, it is. Okay. That's okay. We'll, we'll come back to this list and we're still good. The order will work fine. But I want you to recognize how not different Thomas really is from the other apostles. It looks like he's the only one who didn't believe. But again, it says he wasn't with them. I want you to see the story that comes before Thomas's doubt. I want you to see the events as they unfold for the disciples. And I want you to see if they inherently believe anything more strongly than Thomas does. Watch what happens. Early, you all know this story. This is the Resurrection Sunday, right? Resurrection Day. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Wait a minute. What is her initial thought? 
They stole the body, not Jesus came to life. Her faith isn't like, hey, Jesus came to life. Now, let's be clear. Jesus told her, and I think her specifically, I'll show you why in a second, but he told everybody he was coming back to life. He told the apostles for sure. They had arguments about it. He explained to them that his talking about the temple was a metaphor for himself. He talked about the, the sign of Jonah, where Jonah came back from death, apparently, at least metaphorically, when he came out of the whale. He had explained to them he would come back to life. So it's not like they hadn't heard it. So Mary doubts that, understandably. But she has the evidence of an empty tomb, and she doesn't immediately rush to this place of faith we think Thomas should be at. Her first thought is, somebody messed with the body. So she runs and she tells the apostles that. That seems like a reasonable response. It seems understandable. So what do Peter and the other disciple do? They start running for the tomb. Now let me ask you something. If their first thought is Jesus rose from the dead, I'm not sure the tomb is where you go. I mean, maybe you want to verify he's gone, but if you want to verify he's alive, that's where he wouldn't be. So does Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Just, I don't know if this is a John boast. I'm not sure what's happening here. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Actually, I think this is very characteristic of John and Peter. John is very excited. He, he wants to see Jesus. He's all about getting close to Jesus, but it's always Peter who goes a little bit further than anybody else. <laughs> and that is what happens here. So he goes in. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. We, can, we, we will discuss this every Easter. This comes up. So if you want to learn more about what's happening here, just hang out. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. There's a lot of question about what that phrase means. It doesn't think, look to me like it means he believed Jesus rose from the dead. It's unclear. It might mean that. But the very next sentence says this. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So whatever he believed, he still didn't understand. Okay. I think they doubted. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. You want evidence? You want data? She just saw two angels, and she's still not seeing it, is she? At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. You want evidence? Now she sees Jesus himself, and guess what? She still doesn't believe. <laughs> but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? And thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She's got this worldview. When people die, they stay dead. It's an understandable worldview. But this worldview is so set that even when she sees Jesus, she doesn't see Jesus. The data doesn't line up for her. And so she doubts. Now, we already talked about the difficulty of sorting out James's. It's really difficult to sort out the Marys in scripture. There are good arguments both for and against the idea that Mary Magdalene and Mary of Mary and Martha are the same Mary. If they are the same Mary, this is really fascinating because Mary of Mary and Martha watched Jesus rise, raise Lazarus from the dead and had a conversation with Jesus in which he said, at least to Martha, but I think Mary heard it as well, in which he said, I am the resurrection and the life, and anyone who dies but leaves in me won't stay dead. In other words, there's every possibility that they had a really clear demonstration and speech about Jesus coming back to life, and she still doesn't see it. Even if Mary Magdalene is not the Mary of Mary and Martha, there's every reason to believe she also heard this same story 
because she's then probably the Mary who anointed him for burial, at which time Jesus said, she's anointed me for burial, and then a few passages later said, I'll be back. So in any respect, Mary has heard him say directly, I'm coming back to life. And now he stands in front of her and the empty tomb behind her, and she says, oh, you must be the gardener. Now there's a part of me which gets this a lot. Let's, let's keep going, and then I'll tell you why I can understand this position from her. But the next thing that happens is Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage in so many ways. And I can't skip over it without making a couple of comments, even though they're not directly related to Thomas. One is, I love the fact that she does not recognize Jesus. She doesn't believe him until he recognizes her, until he speaks her name. And it's like hearing her name come out of his mouth prompts that familiarity, and now she knows who he is. And you might say, well, he must have been hidden or something. This is where I understand. So I happen to have a fairly high degree of what's called face blindness. I can recognize, uh, the masks are crazy. I have no idea who's sitting in this room. No, that's not true. I know who you are. My face blindness is not complete. And in context, I can figure out who you are. But if I saw you dressed as you are in Walmart right now wearing your mask, I can almost guarantee you I would not recognize you. I would not know who you were. Take off the mask, I still might not recognize you. Now, as a pastor, this has been terrible. I used to have people who would pass me at Walmart, and then they would come to my co-pastors and say, that Dave, he's really unfriendly. He saw me at Walmart. I know he saw me. He looked right at me, and he didn't even say hi. And I'm thinking, I don't know who that stranger was. The only reason I know what, you know, the color of my kid's hair and whether they're wearing glasses or not is because they're sitting right in front of me right now. I literally don't remember those things. And when I see someone out of context, I don't know who they are, but you know what sometimes happens? They'll call me by name, and that'll help the context. I'll recognize the voice, and I'll go, oh, they know me, I must know them. <laughs> and in a degree, this is what happened with Mary. I'm not saying she's face blind, although for all we know she was. But what I am saying is that it was that familiarity of him calling her name. And I think with an affection. I think with, a, with, a, with an attempt to get her attention and say, look at me. And then notice how it says she turned to look at him. She also wasn't really paying much attention to him. Because he was the gardener. And now she turns and it's Jesus. But do you see the doubt that runs through this whole story? The lack of belief that Jesus is here? Then Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And how did they respond? It doesn't tell us, but keep reading. Because listen to this. On the evening, actually, it does tell us in another gospel. But I'll just tell you, it says they thought she was speaking nonsense. That's just like what Thomas thought of them. And on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Does that passage sound familiar? In other words, although they didn't ask for it, they needed exactly the same evidence that Thomas needed. <laughs> he gave them exactly the same evidence that Thomas asked for. There's nothing different in how Jesus responded to Thomas, except that he addressed him individually because Thomas was individually not here now. Everybody doubted. And we can understand why. And I think I would have doubted. And I think you would have doubted. 
The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Don't get hung up on that. That is a very challenging piece of theology right there. We'll come to that another day. That's not our story today. But it's part of their being sent. It's part of their being apostles. He's telling them, I'm granting you authority. And he gives them the Holy Spirit to grant that authority for them to move forward. So this is what we see. So, so for reasons unknown, Thomas misses this event. But his response is just like theirs. It's no worse. It's just at a different time. Now let's go back to our list. He's suspicious of their agenda. They saw what he didn't see. He didn't get what they got. He says, when I see it myself, you know what? It's even possible the things he asks for are because they told him that's what Jesus gave them. Do you see that? Maybe this wasn't his idea. Maybe he's like, well, when I get what you got, I'll believe what you believe. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Again, we tend to rely, you know, our arguments on social media aren't really about facts and logic. We think they are. We like to pretend our side is and their side's not. But if you really look at it, most of the arguments on Facebook are about whose word you think is credible, which scientist you believe or don't believe, which YouTube video you trust or don't trust, which governmental source you like or don't like, which pastor you, you admire or don't admire. These are really where our senses of credibility come from. And not purely from evidence and data. And Thomas should be given credit for recognizing and being a little suspicious of his own agendas and wanting more. Second thing, I, though, I want you to see is that even though he says, I have to see this or I won't believe, I have to put my hands, he's very specific. He's really not as implacable as he appears. He's not as determined as he seems to be. It seems to me, according to the reading, that everything he said he needed, he just decided he didn't need once Jesus was standing there in front of him. <laughs> that he's like, well, I, okay, I guess I, I don't need to actually poke you, Jesus. I got it. I can see it. And there's something really important about that. The fact that he doesn't use any excuse here to continue in his doubt. The fact that once he sees the essence of what he asked for, that's enough for him. I think it tells us something really important. And that's that for him, his doubt is not simply an excuse to remain uncommitted. When the apostles say to him, we saw Jesus, they probably are encouraging him to come back to the fold. To be a, an apostle again, because Jesus is back. And when he sees Jesus, he doesn't change the goalposts. He doesn't say, well, that's not enough. Now I need to see Jesus walk on water again. Well, that's not enough. Now I need to see him feed 5,000 people again. Well, that's not enough. Now, you know, he doesn't keep doing that. But we all know people who do that. And if we're honest, we've all done that. If I see this, that'll be enough. And then we see it and it's just not enough. Because we have an agenda. We don't really have a search for truth. Because our doubt is just an excuse to remain uncommitted. But actually, Thomas' response when he sees Jesus is the most aggressively committed response we've seen in this entire story. What did Mary call Jesus when she saw him and knew who he was? Teacher. That's good, but that's, not, that's a different level of commitment. What did the apostles call him? Lord. 
that's a little higher. And I'm not saying Mary didn't have the same commitment, but I'm just saying, look at these responses. But what does Thomas call him? And my God, he's the first one since the resurrection who's really recognized what the data shows. If Jesus came back to life, he is not only my Messiah and my Lord. Wow, he's my God. There's no higher level of commitment than to call someone your God. Do we all agree with that? Would you be freaked out if someone called you that? I would. You should be. If not, let's talk. But yeah, this is, this is a big deal. Yeah, and it is, his, it is his immediate enthusiastic cry. Do you see that? It's like, it's not, he doesn't even have to think about it. He's seen it. And you know what? I think this also goes to why he doubted. Because what they told him, he knew the implications. He saw that if Jesus came back to life, I have to change what I think about Jesus. I have to increase my commitment. And yet, when the evidence is there, he does. He jumps right in. Thomas declares, you are God. He doubted the incredible truth of Jesus' resurrection, an understandable doubt. But when he saw it, he had no doubt about who Jesus was. And seeing who Jesus was, was evidence to him of Jesus' divinity. And we see by that that his doubts weren't an an excuse to resist truth. But his doubts were an actual pursuit of truth. And this is an important distinction between some doubt and other doubt. Is your doubt a real desire to get to the reality? You're not willing, like Thomas wasn't willing, to simply accept what sounds good to you, but you really want to know what's true? Or is your doubt an attempt to push away what you think might be true, but are afraid? And Thomas shows to be the first kind of doubt. There's something going on in the world right now, in America in particular, called deconstruction. A lot of Christians are going through deconstruction. It's just a phrase that's come up for people who have recognized that they don't know what the gospel is. It's been attached to so many other parts of church that they're really questioning, is everything I've been taught real? Is everything I've been taught true? Like Thomas, perhaps, they're doubting. But there's a difference in those people who deconstruct Some of them seem only interested in tearing down everything they've been taught and not finding out what might or might not be true. And others seem to be interested in tearing down everything they've been taught with the purpose of seeing what's left and finding out what's true. And Thomas is, again, of the more noble mind, of the deconstructor who wants to know what really happened and not of the deconstructor who wants to push away what it would mean if it really happened. When he comes down to it, he shows he trusts the evidence and he trusts Jesus more than he trusts the apostles. And that's fair. Because the apostles were not always reliable. I think we'd sometimes be, do better ourselves to be skeptical of those who simply agree with our established worldview. We see him do this in another passage in John. I want to read you one of the other passages that we see about Thomas. Interestingly enough, we've already mentioned Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's in this story. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That's an argument for perhaps this being Mary Magdalene. It's not a slam dunk. It's so complicated. But it is an argument for perhaps this being the same person. So the sister sent word to to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus is sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. 
I just love the, the paradoxical combination. He loved them, so he delayed. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea, to which they did not say, it's about time. They said, are you crazy? They want to kill you in Judea. And I think they want to kill us in Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, yet you're going back. Jesus said some mysterious things would leave for another day. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus is trying to be discreet. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Now, I want you to hear this because I think they're being intentionally obtuse. Why are they being intentionally obtuse? They're doubting him. Why are they doubting him? This is the other kind of doubt. <laughs> they're being obtuse because they don't want to go back. Right? He's like, Jesus, he's asleep. I'm going to wake him. And they must know he means more than he's just a, an alarm clock for Lazarus. But they're like, well, sleep is good, so we don't need to go back, Jesus. I guess you, guess you didn't realize that. No, this is the kind of doubt that's saying, we don't want to go. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Now pause. Before we read the next sentence, you got to pause. And you got to picture the 12 apostles listening to what Jesus just said. It's a challenge. Do you hear it? It's a challenge. Listen to me. Let me lay it before you plainly. Lazarus is dead. And you guys have a faith issue here that you're struggling with. And I'm glad this is harsh. It could be harsh. It's not because he knows he's bringing him back to life. But if you don't believe that, this is harsh. He says, I'm glad I didn't go back and he died. And the reason I'm glad is because you need a lesson in faith. You need to learn to trust that, that I'm over death. You know why that's important right now? Because you're worried about what? About death. So here's the challenge upon the apostles. And you can imagine all of them hemming and hawing. This is what I see in the movie of my mind. He says all that and they're all like... And while they're all hemming and hawing, one person steps forward. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What's fascinating about this is you hear both misunderstanding and doubt and incredible faith because he thinks they're going to die, <laughs> even though Jesus said, I have power over death. But you also hear this incredible faith. I trust Jesus. Jesus says we should go. I don't understand what he's talking about. I don't understand anything he's been saying to us. But if he says go, let's go. And it's Thomas who steps forward in the crowd of the apostles and says, let's go. Not Peter, right? Peter's the one you expect to be this guy, but it's not. Thomas beats him to the punch. I'm sure Peter was like, yeah, I was going to say that. But this moment, it's Thomas who stands up and says, let's go. See, Thomas has no problem trusting Jesus. He's shown us that already. His commitment to Jesus is, is not in question. He was willing to die. It's the apostles he wasn't sure he trusted when they said Jesus was alive, which again is understandable. Thomas trusts Jesus more than the apostles. So there's one more short passage where Thomas shows up, and I think it shows us something else that we also see in this passage we just read. So I want to read it, put them together a second. He does something really important that the other apostles are sometimes afraid to do. He asks the question, 
that everyone else is thinking about, but nobody else wants to admit they don't know the answer to. This is the story. Jesus says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. This is a very tender moment with Jesus and the apostles. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why are they troubled? Because he's told them he's going to die. That is the context. <laughs> he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Hmm, little, little, little interesting. This is where Thomas comes to later. You believe in God, that is believing in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. They totally don't understand it, but do you see this is actually a declaration of resurrection here? You know the way to the place where I'm going, he says. How do you like this? Jesus says these weird, mysterious things about his father's house, about things being prepared, about him leaving and coming back. And then he says, but you already know all that. And all of the apostles are thinking, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. But because he said they know about it, you know that pressure. They're like, we're supposed to know. <laughs> I'm not going to admit I don't know what he's talking about. Maybe we'll figure it out if he keeps talking. He says, you know the way to place to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That declaration that Thomas makes, my Lord and my God, it's stated explicitly here. They didn't understand it, but they only got that paragraph because Thomas asked. Do you see that? He's like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> and Jesus is like, well, let me explain it. See, this is really important. Thomas is not afraid to look dumb in order to find truth. And this also goes back to his doubt, doesn't it? The apostles are like, we saw Jesus. And he could be like, cool, I believe you. But no, he's like, nah. <laughs> he's not afraid to look dumb. He's not afraid to ask for what they asked for in order to find truth. He has this ability in all three of these stories to stand apart from the crowd. Do you see that? In all three of these, he's willing to take a stand, which is not like the others. And even his doubt in that context has a certain ability to it because he's not simply accepting what they said because he looks like the outsider. In fact, he says, I am the outsider and I'll stay the outsider until I get what you got to be on the inside. Now, this is not to say that Thomas did everything right. I think these are good. I think these are important. I'll show you how they apply to us very quickly in a second. But I do want to acknowledge, I think there is a place where Thomas went wrong. And in fact, his ability to stand apart from the crowd, this may be the weakness of that side. It may be a certain independence that came into play here, which made him not there. See, this is what it says. Do you remember the reason this whole thing unfolds? The reason for his doubt is very simple. He wasn't there. And the question is, why not? And we don't know the answer, but it's a reasonable question. The apostles were all together. They were scared. They were desperate. They were despairing. They were probably in doubt. They were hopeless. They thought Jesus was gone. And yet somehow in their despair, they decided they would rather be together in their despair than not. But Thomas decided for whatever reason to deal with his despair and his doubt by himself. And because he did that, he missed the truth. This is where I suspect he went wrong. He missed the kind of truth that comes only from sharing your need and despair in community. Sometimes there is truth that is only found by sharing 
your despair and your doubts and your need and your hunger and your darkness with others. But when you try to share your darkness with others, sometimes they don't want it, right? Because who does? <laughs> so I'm not saying it's easy. And maybe you've got to find a community that's willing to let you do that. Not every community will be a good place for that. Some people will mock you for your doubt and your despair and your darkness. But when they do, it's because they just aren't willing to face it themselves. But the other apostles were facing it together. And I can also understand maybe Thomas didn't want to be there because he thought they couldn't help. And you know what the truth is? They couldn't. Right? They didn't make themselves feel better being together. If that was the goal, then Thomas was just as good being somewhere else. Because being together didn't necessarily help. They still doubted. The only thing that helped was Jesus. But they chose to be together. And because they were together, they saw something that Thomas missed. I think this is important. And this is what I want to say. I think from all of this, if there's anything I want to say is that at Focus Church, we want you to become more and more comfortable with expressing your doubts in community. We don't want you to think that being in community means you have to always hide your doubts, cover your despair, pretend that you've got it all together. Because that's barely community. We want you to learn to express your doubts in community. And yet for some of us, we're like Thomas, and we've gotten in the habit of thinking, when I don't have it together, I only hurt other people. Or they can't help me. And if they don't help me, why should I bother? But you should bother because there's a certain kind of truth that is only found when you share your despair and your need in community. So in our groups, we don't expect you to hide your doubts. We don't expect you to cover them over. We don't expect you to pretend they don't exist. We're okay if, like Thomas, occasionally you're like, I know you guys are all on this page, but I ain't on that page. Because last week we talked about living with what? The difference in the room. Well, sometimes you might be that difference. <laughs> That's okay. So here's what we can learn from Thomas. We'll do this very quickly. Number one, be a little suspicious of your own agenda. I think it's good to be a little suspicious of your own agenda. Most of us have learned, one of the things we've learned in our culture that maybe we didn't know or, or wasn't a part of our culture as much as it was a few decades ago, is we have learned to be suspicious of other people's agendas. When other people share something, we've learned to say, well, they just want money, or they just want power, or they just want prestige, or they just want this, or they just want that. It's easy, in a sense, for us to be suspicious of other people's agendas unless they match our agenda. And then because we're not suspicious of our own agenda, we're suddenly not suspicious of their agenda. It, it doesn't matter. Here's an example, which I'll give without, without pointing anybody as right. Whether you're on the pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine side of the world, it is foolish to pretend that there aren't people making money on both sides. <laughs> there are. There are agendas on both sides. That doesn't mean they're both wrong, but it means you should be suspicious just a little bit of your own agenda. What's your agenda? Are you more comfortable with one particular approach? Are you more, does it, or, or are you used to the fears and you like the fears? Whichever it is, it's good to be a little suspicious of your own agenda. Recognize that you have it. It doesn't mean you're wrong. Sometimes your agenda and the truth line up really well. Our desire to be loved and the fact that God loves us, both true. <laughs> you don't have to be suspicious of that. But be suspicious of your agenda a little bit when you have your doubts. Recognize that it might be your agenda that's pushing it. 
rather than cold, hard data. Number two, be honest with your questions, but also honest in pursuing answers. Be like Thomas. When the data's in front of you, don't find a way to push it aside again. Don't keep saying, well, that doesn't matter. I've had so many people throughout my career as a pastor who have said, here's my objection to Christianity. I don't believe X, Y, and Z. And I say, let's talk about it. Here's 19 books on X. Here's 20 books on Y. Here's 42 books on Z. I come back three months later and say, did you read any of them? They say, nope. Okay, that's up to you. But don't pretend it's an honest question <laughs> if you're not looking for an honest answer. Number three, Jesus is always more trustworthy than others you trust. That's a good thing. Be encouraged by that. Because what you discover is the rest of us are unreliable. We just don't always get it right. We've got our own agendas. We've got our own confusions. We don't know where we're going. Be encouraged by that. But also recognize this. If there's people you trust a lot, guess what? You can trust Jesus more. That's what we really want here at Focus. I don't want you to trust me explicitly. I don't want you to trust each other without question. When the apostles told Thomas what they saw, he said, that sounds nutty. When Mary told the apostles what they saw, they said, that sounds nutty. When he saw Jesus, he said, well, you're Jesus. <laughs> holy people are willing to look unholy and smart people are willing to look dumb. But I got to tell you, this has been a life thing for me over the last 10 decades, maybe just because I'm good at looking dumb a lot. But I just think it is so important to recognize truly holy people are willing to look unholy for the sake of true holiness. And truly smart people are willing to look dumb for the sake of finding true knowledge. When we cling to looking smart or we cling to looking holy and we're not a well, a, a willing to share our doubts, that's when we miss both knowledge, wisdom, and true holiness. I'm gonna wrap up with actually a poem uh, that is one of my favorite poems. It's written by, oh, and I did not, there's a typo in this, I did not correct. My daughter told me to correct and I did not. It's written by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Um, the slide says it's written by Alfred Lord Tennyson, um, which is not a cut rate uh, poet wannabe. This is actually Alfred Lord Tennyson. I just got the name on the slide wrong. But he writes this beautiful, beautiful, it's one of my very favorite poems, this beautiful, beautiful long poem, which is a, a tribute to a friend of his, Arthur Hallam, who died. He was a young friend. He died suddenly, unexpectedly, and it devastated Alfred Lord Tennyson. And Alfred Lord Tennyson was a believer. It not only devastated him emotionally, it, it, it really took a toll on his faith. Because Arthur Hallam was one of the best people he knew. And if the Lord could let him die, then who could he trust? And so he began to wrestle with his doubt. And this poem wrestles with his grief and his doubt. At the same time, it's a tribute to his friend. And there's this section in the middle that I just love. Yeah, it should be Alfred Lord Tennyson in memoriam to Arthur Hallam. This section comes up at a moment where he's really grieving and, and wrestling with his doubts. And this woman, this mysterious woman, probably just a made up character for the poem, but someone who represents a lot of people he probably encountered, says to him before this section, this woman says to him in this poem, you're faithless. You shouldn't be wrestling with doubts. You should just put that aside because your doubt is wrong. And his response is very interesting because his response is to say, guess what? The very person I'm mourning doesn't agree with you. And if there's one thing I learned from Arthur Hallam, it's that death is okay. Uh, death. It's that doubt is okay. And this is what he says. Perplexed in faith, but pure in deeds, at last he beat his music out 
There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. A creed is something you recite. You may not even think about it, but when you question it, that doubt has more faith in it. He goes on, he says this, he fought his doubts and gathered strength. He would not make his judgment blind. People say, are we just supposed to have blind faith? I don't believe you are. Tennyson is saying the same thing here. He would not make his judgment blind. He faced the specters of the mind and laid them. Thus he came at length to find a stronger faith, his own. And power was with him in the night, which makes the darkness and the light and dwells not in the light alone. God is that power. He capitalizes power here because he means God. This is not something I'm speculating. Tennyson's clear in the rest of the poem. He believes in God. And he's saying the God, the power that makes the darkness and the light is in the darkness also. In your doubts, God is there. You don't have to be afraid that in your doubts, God can't enter. Guess what? The apostles were filled with doubt in a locked room and who was able to enter? Jesus. Thomas is in a locked room with doubt and who is there? Jesus. You may feel locked in a room with your doubt, but guess who's there? Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of your doubts because God is there anyway. He made the darkness. He made the light. He made you. Your questions, your doubts are not foreign to him. And he's there. Pursue him in it. In your groups, express your doubts in community and wait for Jesus to show up. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.